First, I'd like to start with the past a bit. I know you've been unbelievably active. Been knowing you a little bit. I know you're much more interested in what's going to happen next. But there's not very many people in this room that got to see John Coltrane play. And I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about that experience and also later when you uh, went to the funeral. Mm. Both very significant events. Well, the... Um the first time I heard John Coltrane play live, whatever that means, was in, I was 22 years old, and John Coltrane with his classic quartet with McCoy Tyner and Elvin Jones and Jimmy Garrison were playing at the Village Gate. So I drove there. I live in Poughkeepsie, New York, which is about, it takes about two hours to get into, into Manhattan. And I went there and... I sort of thought I knew what I was expecting to hear or to see. It started with a trio with McCoy and Jimmy Garrison and Elvin Jones. And if you can imagine, because everybody's been on a, on a plane, sitting on the runway, you're number two for takeoff, everybody buckle up, blah, 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 you're sitting there. All of a sudden you get this kick in your back mm -hmm. and the plane starts down the runway. You're nervous because you really don't think this thing's going to work, but eventually it happens and liftoff occurs. And then you rise, you watch the earth fall away. And that's how I felt when I watched it, when, when the trio started playing and then John Coltrane took the stage. As he took the stage, it was like liftoff. Everything kind of went like that. And my breathing kind of stopped. And then he played and it got more and more and more and more and more intense. And I was on an airplane one time and the pilot just before the plane took off started reciting some poem. I don't know who it was by, but he, it, some of the words were to rush at the wind and having caught it to soar. And that's what it was like for me. I couldn't breathe. And by the time it ended, you know, I stayed until uh, they cl closed the place. And I had to drive two hours home, and it was very late, and I kind of nodded, fell asleep at the wheel, but I didn't crash. It went off the road and got in some gravel in the car and like that and woke me up. And then I'm thinking, oh my God, I heard John Coltrane. You know, maybe I'm dead. Maybe this didn't happen. <laughs> you know? It was the most extraordinary experience I have ever had. I've never had anything like that since. Um, that's all I can tell you about that. But you were asking me about uh, John Coltrane's funeral and Ornette Coleman and the reason why I play this plastic saxophone and why I dedicated that piece to Ornette. In 1967, I was invited to a recording session with a friend of mine, Clifford Thornton. And we had uh, a rehearsal in a, an apartment on Barrow Street in New York City. And I went there, and at that time I didn't play saxophone, I only played trumpet. And uh, I was there rehearsing for a recording session which was to take place the next week. 
and a knock came on the door. And I opened the door, and there was Ornette with a trumpet. And he said, oh, I heard you playing the trumpet in here. He said, why don't you try this one? He said, uh, I've got to go to uh, Fort Worth to visit my family. He said, and when you're finished with it, just put it in the room across the hall. That's our rehearsal space over there. And I was like, you're kidding. Ornette's at the door handing me a trumpet. No, this is not happening. So I said, okay. And he left. I closed the door, and I stood there with the trumpet, and I wiggled the valves a little bit, and I said, no, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. So I waited till I didn't hear him anymore, and I went across the hall, and there in that room was... Uh, Charles Moffat's drums and his vibraphones and uh, and David Eisenson's bass. And I'm kind of looking around. I put the trumpet down, closed the door, and locked it in. And then I drove, started driving home. On that drive home, I heard on the radio that John Coltrane had died. This was terrible. What news? You know, uh, I drove home and... I think it was something like the 20th of July, it was on a Friday. I had to go back to New York, back to that same apartment on Barrow Street, because on the next Saturday was the recording session, which was to take place in Brooklyn. Um, a knock came on the door again, and I opened it, and it was Ornette, and he said, are you going to go to the funeral? And I thought, I can't go to the funeral. I don't have the proper clothes. I just have these clothes and I'm, you know, it's all I've got to wear for tomorrow. And he said, you don't need clothes, you just go. So I said, okay. So I went. The funeral was at um, a church up on about 51st Street and Lexington Avenue. It was, uh, there was a priest there named John Ginsel, who was like the, the priest to the jazz community. And I went there, and there was John Coltrane in his coffin in a dashiki. And it was a very joyous kind of, uh, it was celebratory. It wasn't somber or anything else. And up above in the balcony were two bands. One was Ornette Coleman's trio and Albert Eiler's quartet playing. I actually, it's still, you know, vibrating those little hairs in your ears. I heard that I was there. So after the service, I went outside, and I was standing just outside the door, and my friend Clifford Thornton came out, and he was kind of nodding his head, and he was saying, yeah, it's going to be the last of the late great finger wigglers. And he was saying, like, John Coltrane's dead, they're going to come out of the woodwork, and they're all going to go, they don't have a clue what John Coltrane was doing. They're just going to wiggle. And so... <laughs> At some point, I'll read a, a poem of mine called The Last of the Late Great Figures, but I don't have it with me now. Anyway, so I stood there and said, yeah, okay. And while I was standing there, Ornette came out again. Now, I have no idea why this was happening. And he came out and he said, we're going to go to the cemetery in Long Island. Do you want to go? And I, well, do I want to go? Yeah, yeah. He was with Billy Higgins and a guy named Harold Avent, another drummer. They, he got called his limousine, it pulled up, jumped in, and off we went. Driving through New York traffic, getting to Long Island, we got stuck in the traffic, and by the time we got there, the service was over. So now there's just a tent over Coltrane's grave site, and if you can imagine the image of Ornette Coleman standing there. No one else can tell you that, because Billy Higgins is dead, Ornette is now dead, 
and Harold Avon is dead. So I'm the only one who can tell you that I was, there were no cameras, there were no photographs. Um, but it didn't end there. I go back to Barrow Street because all my stuff's there and I got a recording session the next day and I'm in there playing my trumpet again and another knock on the door. We're playing at the Vanguard. Do you want to come? Yeah. So I went there and that night until the Vanguard closed, I was there with Ornette Coleman's trio listening to that music and I heard Ornette playing some of Coltrane's music. One piece I remember in particular was Naima that he played. There's reference to that in some um, writings by uh, journalists, but they weren't there. I was there. I know what I heard. And not only that, but there's a recording of it because Ornette recorded everything on a little Nagra tape recorder, and he must have billions of tapes of that. But that particular one may at one point show up and you can say, I heard Joe McPhee tell me that story. <laughs> talk a little bit about uh, Clifford Thornton and, and his impact on you and how you met him. Oh, no, I can't tell you all of that. Well, okay. Well, I can tell you what I, <laughs> that's too much, man. Okay. Yeah, that's, there's secrets in there. Okay. No, Clifford Thornton's a, a, a cornetist and trumpet player, and he was very, very influential in uh, introducing me to written jazz music. I was an aficionado of, of, uh, Jazz had a lot of recordings and so on, but I had not even seen a piece of written jazz music until he introduced me to a Miles Davis composition called Four. And uh, we became very close. He was teaching at uh, Wesleyan University, and um, I had invited him to a recording session. Not a rec recording session. Well, it was a concert in New York City at a place called... Um, the Free Music Store, or WBAI, there's a recording from 1971 of this. And it was in a particular period when, for some inexplicable reason, bass players would have nothing to do with me. They said, nah, it's not real music I was playing, blah, blah, they'd just walk away and wouldn't play. So in that particular recording, um, there's no bass player. There's a drummer, an alto player, a pianist, and myself, it was on uh, Halloween in 1971. Well, um, what was I tell you about this in particular? Oh, Clifford Thornton appeared, and he had, I know he had a valve trombone because I was with him when he bought it in Germany, and it's a particular one, a special short model. <laughs> So, sorry to interrupt, but did you meet him in the army? Is that how you? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I met him in Würzburg, Germany. But there's another long story that I can't tell you okay. about. Okay. <laughs> some other time. <laughs> some other time, because it involves somebody who's still alive. Okay. <laughs> so, so okay, think about it. But anyway, uh, when it, when I tell when I tell the story, you'll understand why I can't say it now. I could, but I don't want to get somebody in trouble. Anyway. Um, Clifford had this valve trombone, and I, I recognized it because I was with him when he bought it. 
in Würzburg, Germany. And on the bell, he had it engraved, uh, Würzburg, at the shop where he bought it, and so on. In 1971, he showed up. He didn't have it. He had a baritone horn, and he said the trombone was stolen out of a car. Could have been an apocryphal story. I don't know. Anyway, from 1971 to 1979, it, just, it was gone. And uh, by chance, I was in New York, and I thought, I always wanted to play a valve trombone, so I went to uh, a music shop called Silver and Horlin that sold used instruments, and I said to the guy there, I said, I'm looking for a valve trombone. You, do you have anything? And he said, yeah, I got this German one. And I thought, that's odd. It's usually a king or a con or something like that that I know about. Why a German one? And I went and looked in there. In the case was the bell of the horn. Not completely assembled, but only the bell. And I said, I know that horn. Now, of all the people in the world, there are only two of us who could identify it. One was Clifford Thornton, and the other was me, because I was there when he bought it. And I said, oh. So I had a friend pick it up, and I said, if it's in a case that's maroon on the outside and gray, blah, 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 no matter what it costs, buy it. So my friend bought it, and he brought it to me. And I knew Clifford was in, uh, he was in Geneva at the time. He was living there. So I had his telephone number, and I called him up, and I said, does the number 872 mean anything to you? He said, not particularly. What is that? I said, you know, that's the number that was on that trombone that you bought in Würzburg. And he said, how do you know? I said, because I'm holding it. And he said, I said, uh, you, you know, stole it. <laughs> I said, I've got to come. I'm coming to, I've got a concert in Geneva and I'll bring it. And he said, no, why don't you just keep it? He said, because I got another one. I have a king now. <laughs> and so I've been playing that trombone ever since. And ironically, tomorrow night, when I go home from here, I get an early flight tomorrow, I get into New York about 9 o'clock, catch a train, I get to home to Poughkeepsie about noontime to change from these instruments to my valve trombone of Clifford Thornton and another one for a concert in a trombone trio tomorrow night. <laughs> and with that instrument that I'm telling you about now. brings me to a, a question I wanted to ask you about. Um, you're one of the few true multi-instrumentalists in terms of crossing over between reeds and brass. Um, I started off as a trumpet player and was uh, terrible and basically switched to tenor saxophone because it, my embouchure was such a mess with the trumpet that I figured the saxophone would, because it works on the bottom as opposed to the top, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Uh, and that was my logic, and for me that was a good decision. When you started yeah, off it was with, a good decision. <laughs> yeah, I was really a terrible trumpet player. Um, but knowing a little bit about the Brass family because of that history, uh, they're so different. And, I mean, you play, I mean, yesterday you were playing clarinets, uh, today saxophones, you're going to be playing trombones tomorrow, you play pocket trumpet. Uh, the list of instruments you've worked with and continue to work with is so diverse and you're unbelievably strong on all of them, which is kind of basically impossible. 
How do you? How it's do you plausible. do it? Or how impossible. do you? How it's do like you, the Road Runner and that coyote. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you? I mean, how do you approach the instruments? How do you think about it? What made you go to the tenor? Uh, I mean, all these things are quite amazing to me as a, as a musician playing uh, reed instruments. Like what you do, I mean, it's pretty. From just a physical standpoint, mm. is extraordinary. How do you think about it, or do you not think about it? Or? I don't think about it anymore, but there was a time when I did. My dad was a trumpet player, and uh, a very fine trumpet player, and a strict disciplinarian. <laughs> and when I was eight years old, one day I was out playing stickball in the street with some friends, and he said, come here. And I went in the house, and there was his trumpet and his music. He was a first chair trumpet player, and his silver Holton trumpet, which I have, and for some psychological reason I cannot play. Um, anyway... He taught me to play the trumpet, and uh, he was a bit more than disappointed when I started to play the saxophone. But he didn't know that I, what happened was I had heard a, a recording of Albert Eiler, <laughs> and I knew, ooh. I mean, Coltrane and, and Eric Dolphy and, and Ornette, okay, I, I loved all of that music, but once I heard the sound of Albert Eiler, I was smitten and there was no going back. So I, I worked for, actually for a long time, for about 18 years in a factory that made automotive ball bearings. It paid my rent, it paid my uh, expenses, and it made it possible for me to travel to Europe where I played in concerts and stuff like that. But to get back to the other thing, um, when I came around with the saxophone, which I had borrowed from a friend, my dad said to me, you shouldn't do that. It wouldn't be a good idea because you're going to destroy your embouchure for the trumpet. But I had seen the local Philharmonic where I live. And I didn't see anybody in that Philharmonic orchestra that looked like me. And I thought, but all the jazz people, yeah, okay. So, uh, okay, jazz and the trumpet. Something was happening to trumpet players. They seemed to be dying faster than saxophone players. And I thought, well, <laughs> you know, maybe it's because of the way the sound is produced. The trumpet, the sound is produced by actually vibrating your lips. And if you can look at my lips, you can see that the pigmentation is, is changing because it's so violent, it shatters the pigmentation. And uh, it's bits and pieces of you physically fly out of the horn with the notes. Saxophone players can buy boxes of reeds. I got a box right here. You know, it's like new lips. <laughs> it can work. So I said, okay, you can do that. You develop the embouchure and the muscles. And as Ken said, they're different, very different, how, how they operate and so on. And probably because I don't know any better or, or whatever, I can do that and I can switch like that. I don't think of one, if I touch this instrument, that's the one I'm playing. If I touch the trumpet, that's the one I'm playing and I can switch so fast, I don't think about it. If you think about it, you won't be able to do it. Your thinking slows you down. So it's possible, it's plausibly impossible, but a bumblebee's not supposed to fly either, right? No, but it does. It's aerodynamically wrong, but it can do it. It can do it because I bet it never thinks about flying. <laughs> yeah. Another thing is, my forever my hero will be 
an imaginary or cartoon character from the from the funny pages. His name was Gerald McBoing Boing. Does anybody know who Gerald McBoing Boing is? Yeah. It was who? Who said that? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, Gerald McBoing Boing is this little kid who couldn't speak, and he was always ridiculed by his his peers, his classmates, and everything because he couldn't speak, but he could make sounds. And he could make the sound of anything. So you always saw this bubble over his head. There'd be fire engines, jet planes, everything in there. He could make anything. And he's my hero. That's... <laughs> so there's a motivation. question about a shift maybe it, it's just in my perception um, I, I heard Joe's music um, when I was a teenager and it really changed me permanently uh, for the better um, and I got all the records I could that, that I could find at Joe's uh, at that time they were on Hat Hut um, and then Hat Art and whatnot and I w went to school I heard when I was 17 and went to the University of Montreal that same year, and it was easy to get the records there, so I picked up everything I could. Um, and he's really one of the great composers in improvised music, or jazz, or whatever we want to call it. Um, and we heard one of the pieces tonight, which is <coughs> indicative of the, the kinds of things that he would write. Um, and you made a decision at some point to, uh, let's say, abandon conventional composition and working with groups on your pieces uh, to complete improvisation. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that decision, how, um, yeah, why you made it, why you made the move? Yeah, that decision was informed by having an opportunity to work for a week with Don Cherry in New York uh, on a project called Relativity Suite with um, the Jazz Composers Orchestra Association. I was invited uh, to be a part of that, which was an extraordinary experience. And Don presented us, the ensemble, with... Uh, he sang all the parts, and his wife, Moki, made these banners, mm -hmm. which gave you a visual indication of what was supposed to happen when. So each day that we went during that week, uh, Don would sing the parts. We had to learn them, and there'd be a banner, and the next day there would be another banner. So it became kind of incremental like that. And uh, 
it's a kind of traditional, a tradition kind of griot kind of tradition, I suppose, uh, kind of uh, learning things and having the music come from the inside out as opposed to sitting there reading a score. There's nothing wrong with reading a score or interpreting music that way. But it seemed to me what Don was showing all of us was that it's inside you, you know, and you can bring to the table the best that you can, can bring. That was an extraordinary experience for me. And the first opportunity I had to, to work with that concept was um, with an ensemble in 1981, which became the Topology mm -hmm. Project, which was a 10-piece band with some really wonderful musicians. Uh, one of the pieces we played at that time was Lonely Woman. But the producer at that time decided that it was a wrong note in it. And so for 31 years, it sat on a shelf until John Corbett finally, and he may even have a copy of it here, finally released it to the chagrin of, well, never, I won't go there. Anyway, <laughs> but it's out. And I, I, I gave a copy in, 19, in 2009. I was invited to, to uh, this rehearsal thing with Ornette. And I gave him a cassette of it. And I said, listen, uh, I'd like you to have this. And he said, let's put it on now. I said, no, 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 not now. He said, yeah, let's put it on now. He put it on and he wouldn't take it off. And I'm really happy that John released it uh, after Ornette had a chance to hear it, but before he died, because it would be kind of like, okay, I'm trying to take advantage of, 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 of this great man's uh, passing. No, no, not at all. It's just that, mm. anyway, okay. Okay. case closed. Um, you've been working since the what, early seventies? Performing and recording and, and touring, yeah? Um, it started actually in, the first recording was probably about 1969. Actually. Okay, yeah, so, yeah. so that, mm -hmm. even longer. Mm -hmm. um, could you describe a little bit the changes you've observed, um, not just with the recording, quote-unquote, industry or the performing climate, uh, there's been a lot of changes even in the time I've done stuff, so you've, you've been doing things much longer. But in terms of positives and negatives, and also connected, it's kind of a broad question, that that, that line of activity connected to social and political activity. Because when you came up in the period of the late 60s, mm -hmm. there was definitely a very strong political and cultural climate happening, and things have changed quite a bit since then, some for good, some for worse. How do you see those things wrapping together or do you find them to be separate? Sadly, too much the same shit going on. <laughs> and um, what was happening in the, in the 70s, um, the very first opportunity I had to make a recording, my friend Craig Johnson, for God knows why, he heard, uh, we got into a conversation when we first met over Balkan Sobrani pipe tobacco. And then eventually Miles <laughs> Davis and my friend Craig Johnson heard 
some music that I played, and he said, oh, you should make a recording. You should play solo. And I said, nobody would want to hear that. <laughs> and so he bought some equipment, and he started, he started uh, in his home. We made these experimental recordings and so on like that. Some of which, thank again, thanks again to John Corbett, are coming out now. And one of the very, the very first recording I did, I made for CJR Records was called Underground Railroad. And I thought I'd never have an opportunity to do anything like that again. So I'm going to dedicate that music to it was called quote unquote the Black Experience on the Planet Earth, as opposed to Pluto. <laughs> You know, and so there are pieces dedicated, for example, to Harriet Tubman, to um, a, a slave revolutionary, extraordinary man by the name of Denmark Vesey. Uh, and uh, it was funny, uh, a few years ago, the thing was invited to play at a Christopher Wool exhibition at the Guggenheim with me as a guest. And Christopher Wool has had a painting uh, which he titled nation time so the, the guys in the thing they came and i invited them to poughkeepsie to, to come and visit and we were supposed to have a rehearsal and i said okay i'm gonna get them now <coughs> they came and i took them to see 12 years a slave whoa in, in anticipation of the nation time concert you know and i remember ingerbrecht one of the bass players and and, and Mott said i thought the underground railroad was a subway system it wasn't. It was important and devastating for us to sit there together and have that experience. And so the early pieces, the early works that I did were given titles that were about that experience, the Underground Railroad and stuff like that, which was also very important to Max Roach, for example, and and, and the Civil Rights Movement. And then I was invited to, to do a, a course in... Uh, a black history program at Vassar College, which I titled A Revolution in Sound. And I was dealing with music that uh, took place after the bebop period. And it was also a time when Richard Nixon was in office and Kent State happened and all like that. It was a, an extraordinarily important and interesting period where there was a lot of student activity which it seems to me now sadly missing from what's going on. Um, a kind of involvement. I mean, we got gadgets now. Why do we have, we got Twitter and whatever the fuck that shit is. You know? <laughs> Why do we need to talk to each other? Why do we need to be engaged? And then I see something like, you see this Black Lives Matter thing, and I see Donald Trump talking like, oh, he's, you know, his attitude, that idiot, man, who needs that? You better, it's not so much, no, we better know. We better connect. We better be uh, involved. And I think things have not changed that much. They've stayed pretty much the same, but probably even more dangerous now. Very, very much more dangerous now, even than in the 70s. And uh, it, it requires an extraordinary vigilance, and uh, forget about the selfies and all that crap. Just, I mean, look into the eyes of somebody you see on the street who's homeless 
These people have a face, they have a name, they have lives, but we don't know because we pass by. We're too busy looking at our selfies and whatever. It's important to do that. I think I'm preaching. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Whatever. No, it was, it was the question. It was definitely yeah. the question. Um, I'll finish with one more and then open it up to questions from, from everyone here. Um, you're very well known for the music, but you're also a poet. And yesterday uh, you read poet. a bunch. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> okay. uh, you, read, you read a bunch of your poetry in Milwaukee, which was, which was really fantastic. And for me, very informative. Um, how do you see the relationship maybe between your music and the poetry? Uh, obviously, there are different kinds of endeavors, but do you see a connection between them in a creative way? And with other arts, I know that you're, you've been talking about working on a, a book with Peter Brotzman where he'll, he'll be doing, you know, I'm guessing, mm -hmm. prints and you're, with the poetry. Yeah. I mean, these are all significant creative acts, too, and I was wondering what you thought about those. Well, poetry or whatever that whatever it is comes out of the idea that some of the titles for the pieces come after the fact. Sometimes they're before, but generally not. I don't. There's no real quid pro quo with the titles, and and some maybe they become connected and related later. But in the beginning, I don't start off and say, well, I'm going to do a field of flowers and then write music about that or whatever. It comes after and I see these images happen. Um, sometimes the titles become ideas for words to express some other ideas. And some, it bounces back, back and forth. I don't know if what I do is poetry. It's sort of kind of called that. It's just, um, I would say, observations and musings. And I say this in the title of, 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 of um, this collection that I have, which is called A Leaf in the Stream of Time. Time is passing in a kind of uh, continuum and a leaf plops in there and bounces from from one side of, of, of that stream to the other on its journey from hither to yon or wherever it's going. And it's, it's about that. So I call it um, observations and musings of a Bahamian son because my, my parents are from the Bahamas and my dad would have loved such a title. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just... Um, Looking at things in a life as as it's passing, really, basically. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can I read something to you though that's kind of connected to some what we play today in this um, mention of Ornette Coleman? There's a recording here. I think maybe John might have one here, but the um, Lonely Woman that was recorded in 1981. I hope I have it in there. Uh, uh, let me see. I hope it's here. Because I'm going to be bummed if it's not. Yes. The recording uh, was titled The Loneliest Woman. And it was called that because for eight, 31 years it just sat. And nobody ever heard it. So then I... So it, from that title, this piece came. And... 
I wrote it in uh, 2012. I was in, in Marseille, in the south of France, on a particular street. But the story, the narrative here will tell you more about what it is, if I can see without my glasses. The Loneliest Woman. A dry rain falls like dust. At least, that's what they call it in Seattle. A dry rain. Cold, damp, touching to the bone. I turn a corner on a street of dreams. Eyes watch me move past construction debris. They watch me. Am I the one? Watch me. Make my way through a judgment-free zone of hope. Is he the one for me? A dry rain falls like dust, each drop resounding separately in a thunderous roar of silence, mirroring my footsteps. Hello, hey Joe, wanna give it a go? La Belle, La Belle, space angels from another time recalled the Creole Lady Marmalade's Gitchy, gitchy, ya, ya, da, da. A dry rain falls like dust. Black umbrellas erupt like fields of dandelion puffs in springtime, shielding portals to the soul. But whose soul? Ask me no questions, I'll tell you no lies. Gitchy, gitchy, ya, ya, da, da. Gitchy, gitchy, ya, ya, here. The work is hard. It takes its toll. Beauty failed, fades in the shadows. But it matters not. Just take your pleasure. Prove your masculinity. Move on up the hill to the next. Stiletto heels, blonde wigs, and somewhat questionable femininity. Entice, incite, invite delights of the moment, but this is a judgment-free zone, and she lives in hope. Is he the one for me? A dry rain falls like dust, the dust of disappointment. I am not the one. I move on, up the hill, on this street of dreams, while Ornette Coleman's Mona Lisa dances in my head.
Well, Joe agreed to the idea of taking some other questions, so maybe we do a few and we'll call it a night. Anybody? Okay. No, actually, it's not that much of a question, but rather if you can talk a little bit about the new record that uh, John put up. Um, oh, the new record. Alone together. Yes, I do. Which has old. also been sitting for a while. Uh, for pretty much the same reason. Uh, pretty much. Well, it's a recording that was made uh, between a period of 1974 and 79 with my friend Craig Johnson, who I have to say over that Balkan Sobrani pipe tobacco changed my life and made it possible for me to be sitting here talking to you. Craig is a painter. He lives in Seattle now. He's 87 years old, and I'm going to see him in a few weeks to celebrate 50 years of knowing each other and all of this mess that we're doing. Um, he wanted to record me solo in 1966, and I said no. It was, uh, I wasn't playing saxophone, I was only playing trumpet, and I said, oh no, nobody would want to hear me play solo, and I really don't know what to do about that. I don't know even know how to begin. But he bought all this equipment and started just recording things. And at one point, uh, in 74, we recorded something called Pieces of Light with a synthesizer player uh, who played an ARP 2600 synthesizer. And he bought a, a tape recorder that could re record sound on sound. No, before that, in 71, we recorded something, one of the pieces dedicated to Albert Eiler and his brother called Astral Spirits. And I played soprano at one point and trumpet on the other. I didn't want to play tenor because that was just too much. But there was a series of sound on sound recordings. And then he got a four track recorder and we were able to multi-track things. And this new recording is multi-tracked but because I can play brass and reeds, there are some, there's a quartet of brass instruments, trumpet, piccolo trumpet, E-flat alto horn, and I don't think there's a trombone on it. But there are also now another quartet of reed instruments, alto, tenor, soprano, and God knows what else, or maybe combinations of those. So it's kind of an extraordinary recording because I don't think it's ever been done before. And it's been only recently undercovered because I uncovered because I found all these tapes in my basement after 40 years. And John heard it and, whoa, said, let's do this. And so now it's out there, so you should check it out. It's called Alone Together. And I think it's quite a unique um, <sighs> undertaking. Personally, I think it's very successful. Some of the some of the, some of it's totally improvised, but some of it is also uh, was sketched out at the time. Uh, so there are parts that are yeah, they're written parts to it. It's it's an interesting for me. It's interesting. You know? <laughs> Another question? Yeah. When you played um, "Left Every Voice," yes. Uh, African-American National Anthem, right? So mm -hmm. I was thinking about something I think about a lot, which is the connection in this kind of music between African-American grassroots traditions and mm -hmm. Africa. You mentioned 
Don Cherry kind of evoking mm -hmm. a griot spirit. Yeah, the griot tradition. And a more kind of like European avant-garde tradition, you know, John Cage, maybe Stockhausen. Mm. How do you see these things, I mean, the miracle of these things coming together uh, in people's music? Well, I think it's absolutely natural, and uh, I would, it would be like looking at my own navel if I wanted to check that out, because <laughs> it's just the way things are that happens that way. I don't think European, I know, because I play a lot in Europe, and um, uh, there is a, 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 a way that Europeans approach improvisation that has nothing to do with the way uh, music happened here out of a kind of necessity here. In, in in America, uh, it's just it's very different, but not exclusive, and could be. You know, it's easy to build up these kind of walls and say, "Oh, this is my shit here, and this is yours there," and blah blah blah, and they should never meet. And a lot of that happened in the '70s with the um, uh, the period called loft jazz. Things were happening and everybody was getting together until the New York Times wrote something about loft jazz and all of a sudden it was this person's loft jazz and that person and you can't look at my music because it's this and that and it's just crap. No, man, we can do anything with anybody and and we're very lucky that we, we have these connections with European musicians and unfortunately they don't get a chance to come here as often as we can go there and play for any number of reasons because of extortion here with governmental bullshit and so that's unfortunate but um, well you can talk about the English school and the German school and blah 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 but I think when when the musicians get together all of that fades away and it doesn't mean anything you know but I <laughs>